Hello and welcome. This is High Point, the podcast of the acoustic consultancy Atelier Crescendo. At High Point, we talk about public places, performance venues, instruments, acoustics, and all things music related. We are Marc Fuselier, founder and director of Atelier Crescendo, and Jake Cotier, co-founder and producer of High Point. Thanks for tuning in. And if you enjoy listening to us, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Hi, Michelle. How are Hi. you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for the invitation to be here. No problem. Welcome to High Point. Thanks for having us uh, in your office at the Royal Northern College of Music. Uh, we have a lot of questions to ask you and a lot of things we'd like to discuss with you. But uh, first of all, can you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Michelle Phillips and I'm Head of Enterprise Academic here at the Royal Northern College of Music and a Senior Lecturer. Great. Uh, I've got an interesting fact about you as well. Well, two, you're a professional saxophonist as well, and you're a chartered accountant, and you used to be an auditor at KPMG. Absolutely, That's yeah. quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Saxophone very close to my heart, yeah. Tenor and baritone saxophone, and I play in this fantastic nine-piece ensemble, Equinox saxophones, which which I love. Um, yeah, and my and my early career was quite different, was as a financial auditor. So I, I did my undergraduate and master's degrees and then um, spent four years training as a chartered accountant and auditing exciting people's accounts with KPMG. I did love it, actually, and I found it very useful. But I got some real insights into things like um, I was the auditor for Opera North one year, which is absolutely fascinating. Great. That's quite interesting. So did you did you get back to music or were you doing like a lot of music studies uh, at the same time or you decided to, well, you had enough of it and you stopped it? What, <laughs> what was the situation? Yeah, I, I mean, I always intended really to go back to music and to research. I think I wanted to try something different after my master's. I wanted to make sure that I tried a few other things before I came back to it. I also wanted to have the chance to develop another skill set. And I was really keen on that idea of becoming a bit more financially literate. Um, I think it yeah, gives you a lot important. of... Um, yeah, I think whatever you end up doing after that, if you've got those that awareness of, of how the finances work, it's always useful, isn't it? And it was really interesting. I, I, I had a really nice time, but it got to the point where I thought, right, now's the time to go back and do what I, what I really love. So you're still using your skills, accounting skills now? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really um, pleased that I have that. I mean, I, I think in two ways, really. One is that I try to do lots of voluntary work helping charities with their accounts. And I think it's nice to think I can do that because that can be something that can be very expensive for a small charity. Um, I've worked with King's Junior Voices um, in Cambridge and a, and a couple of others. And it's really nice to think you can help. Uh, and also I do a lot of work here with the students on teaching them about things like tax and how to budget and how to make a really cool spreadsheet. Yes, great. That's nice. Nice to have. Uh, so before talking about your the research you do and your activities, I'd like to think well to talk about the uh, the RNCM. So can you introduce it? Um, what is it? Where is it? Uh, introduce some numbers if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so the RNCM, the Royal Northern College of Music, is in Manchester. Um, it's existed as the RNCM since 1973, and at that point, it, it was two two things that came together. It was the 
Royal Manchester College of Music and the Northern School of Music. Um, so, of course, that means that this year, this academic year is our 50th anniversary. So we've got lots of exciting celebrations. So it's a building that is, you know, very centrally an, an educational institution. We've got more than 900 students and they come from all over. They come from over 60 countries. Um, it's also a building that is a, a performance venue. So um, we have lots of musicians coming in from all around the world. So it's extremely lively. The performance spaces are always really busy, whether it's our students or something else. Um, and it's lovely that we have these, you know, because we're also a venue as well and a place for students to come. We've got these lovely cafes, really nice bar. Yeah, so there's, um, there's a, quite a few performance spaces. Uh, there's a concert hall, which is 750 seats in capacity, roughly. There's a theatre, but there's, uh, there's the Foreman Lecture Theatre as well. But there's quite a lot, actually. When I went in the atrium, I realised there's, there's new names I haven't seen on the website. Is that, is that right? Or they've, they've been renamed? There's... Yeah, the, the performance venues have, have, have been there, have always been there. So the concert hall, uh, our big concert hall, which was refurbished, uh, I think it was 2014, we had a big £7 million grant to refurbish that put in a balcony so that's a lovely lovely space um the opera theater which is where we do our we do operas twice a year fully staged operas we do our session orchestra concerts there in there as well so that's uh, next door but yeah we've got lovely smaller spaces the the lecture theater uh, the foreman lecture theater serves as both somewhere we can do our classes we can do our academic classes but it's also a performance space and actually sounds sounds really lovely but we've got some smaller spaces like the you might have seen the recital room the carol nash recital room which which isn't small, you know, it's about 120-seater, and it's lovely for some smaller, more intimate performances. But we've got a lot of large studios as well. We've got eight studio spaces, which are also really lovely to rehearse and to perform. Great. And you said about 70 practice rooms. Yeah, 70 spaces. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's enormous. And they're always in demand, yeah, dedicated, hard-working students. Yeah, set about 70 practice rooms that students can hire out. And so how many students are they uh, in... I, I, there's, it's a, it provides undergraduate and postgraduate programs, doesn't it? Also research programs. How many students in total are there? Uh, how many practice instruments? How many do more like music research? Yeah, uh, we've got about at the moment the split is about five hundred and fifty undergrad, okay. and that's about uh, it's mostly uh, students on our BMOS, which which some people would say is the classical course. And then we've got about 136 on the pop music course undergraduate. Um, we've got about 35 PhD students, so um, postgraduate research students. And they're studying for PhDs in performance, composition, music education, music psychology. Um, and then the rest of them are our master's students. Uh, so we have taught master's programmes. And those are you know, for students of, of all, different, all different genres of music. We've got a couple of big master's programmes. Great. And you had Joe... As a PhD student, Joe, who's um, who's CEO of the uh, the OMF, who's from the uh, the previous episodes. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah, we we miss Joe. She was she was great while she was with us. Yeah, she did our, our P, her PhD with us while also running Olympus Music Foundation, and she's a great example, you know, of, of everything the RNCM is about. Because while she was here, you know, she put on some incredible performances uh, linked to. OMF specifically we had a theme one year which is we are migrants and she worked with local communities and with the ensemble Cabantu and we had this incredible performance and she taught on some of our programs while she was pursuing her own research as well so yeah she's doing great things yeah she's got a lot of energy yeah, yeah she's 
using it very well. Absolutely amazing, amazing person. Great. Um, in terms of architecture, um, I'd like to touch a little bit on this. Um, I noted a few uh, bullet points, but we also realise the building, when you come into the building, it seems to be an old building that's been renovated. It's very obvious, but it's nice, it's blended. So um, it was uh, made, uh, built in 1973, is that right? Uh, by the architect Bickerdike Allen. Um, but that was the first building, so uh, I'll let you carry on if you if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been it, it's a building with a, a nice history that's had various bits added onto it as well. So when that merger happened in 1973, um, and things were moved, so there was a, an existing space here. It isn't really exactly the same space that you see now. It's changed a lot, and they brought all of their pianos over, and their staff came over, and this became the RNCM. Um, and it's had it's interesting because I've been here for quite a long time now. I've been here nearly 11 years, um, but you hear people who've been here longer than me who talk about the new new bit but the new bit is actually quite old so it used to be the the building does have a face onto Oxford Road onto the main road although the entrances are on the two other sides but that face onto Oxford Road used to be much further set back so there used to be a space there just a a space a bit of concrete between Oxford Road and the RNCM and it's been built outwards from there and there's all sorts of developments happened we had a, a large grant to make the building much more um much more climate change friendly and you can probably see out of the window this huge black box that you can see on our roof garden here is a big is a big storage um facility like a big battery um so that we can make sure that we are as energy saving as possible great and uh then there was uh yeah the extension which is the new entrance um by um Mills Beaumont Levick Channon who I think are rich architects now they um they've changed names and um, then there was the major refurbishment of the concert hall. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that new bit, the 1997 to 98 bit, the bit where it was extended further out onto Oxford Road, that's where our library building is. And a lot of our practice rooms are now in that building and some of the bigger studios. And so that's the bit as you come into the RNCM that's on the other side to the cafe. Yeah, and the concert hall refurbishment was really big news. Yeah, I, I was here then and um, it was fantastic that we got the funding for that. And it was really quite a big overhaul. You know, there was work done on the floor, the balcony was put in. It was made a lot more acoustically um, advanced. But of course, the tricky thing for us was that it's a very busy venue. So that whole year, it was a chance for us to rethink where performances might sit. Um, but it was challenging as well, because I think it's such a lovely space that's at the heart of our building. And it was out of action for a while. So, yeah, we were very glad to have it back. Yeah, great. So how... Um Can you tell where the funding was from? Was it from just the RNCM or was it from different different directions? I can tell you where it was from. Uh, Let me just see if I've got this somewhere here. Uh, Yeah, so before the interview, I asked a few questions to Michelle and she's got some notes because she doesn't know everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was a it was public funded. It was a um it was a grant from the uh, a capital grant that came from UKRI, so centrally government funded. So we applied for it, and made the case that this refurbishment was necessary, and they were able to give us the funding. We raised some of the funding in a couple of other ways, but the initial seed funding was from UKRI. It's quite interesting to know this because I know more and more places uh that are trying to refurbish a public place with maybe a performance venue. Um, and really struggling 
but that would the refurbishment would have a lot of benefits for the community. So that's why I'm asking. It's quite important to know how and where uh, funding can come from. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's lots of different capital funds, I think, that are available for institutions in higher education because it's recognised that spaces need refurbishment, not just to make them look better, but to make them function better and also to keep them up to date. You know, we learn more about acoustics for concert halls as time goes on. So an, an old acoustic does need refreshing in order to just keep up with, with what audiences expect. Do you know what they did for the acoustics of the concert hall? What they changed? They changed, they, they reupholstered it. So um, they reupholstered it and, and also the balcony made a difference. So we had one concert where they came in and did the tests. The acquisitions came and did the gunfire tests yeah. during the concert just while fun. the hall was full. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was really great. Nice for audiences to see as well. Um, so they reupholstered it. I think they did some things underneath the flooring on the main stage because that was changed. Um, some of the textures on the walls were changed as well. Um, the reverberation time didn't change. Yeah. Okay. Great. And... Um, this year is the 50th anniversary of ONCM. Um, you mentioned it earlier. What sort of activities are you doing? Uh, or is the Conservatoire organising? Can you can Yeah, you big them? celebration. Big, big party. Yeah, we, we, launched this, we launched this recently, a few weeks ago, our 50th anniversary celebration. And it's basically multiple events designed to celebrate everything that the building represents. Um, and one of the big events at the end is a community festival. We're calling it the Big Weekender, where we're inviting in communities and young people um, and all the you know the groups that we do reach out to on a regular basis and including things like our children's opera, our family days, but letting them have the building showcase what they do, work with our students. So there's a lot of big events over the years, symphony orchestra concerts, big band concerts, session orchestra. We've got some really nice guests coming into those concerts. We've got lots of opportunities for students to play side by side with orchestras, ensembles, bands. We had Snarky Puppy in uh, a week or so ago. Um, so we've got lots of things happening that are that we're hoping to make a really big splash about. We've also got other things connected to the 50th anniversary. We've got some fantastic visitors coming in, doing masterclasses. We had Sally Beamish, composer Sally Beamish, in yesterday, working with students, doing some performances. We've got a fundraising campaign for people to have the chance to support the future of the music industry by helping to support our students. And we've got some really, we've got a lovely gala dinner as well that people can come in and have a, a, a three-course meal here and come and see some really amazing performances in the hall great where where can we hear more or read more about it is it on the website on... absolutely yep yeah. so it's on wowowork.rncm.ac.uk um, and I think it's 50 fund let me just check uh, yeah so if you go to um, www.rncm.ac.uk slash series slash rncm hyphen 50 50th sorry hyphen anniversary and you'll see everything that we've got on. I'll definitely go on it. <laughs> um, and uh, I just wanted to ask you as well, what's the admission process at the RNCM and who, who can access it? Is it hard? Is it really challenging? <laughs> it can be daunting sometimes when you have to be admitted to music school or conservatoire. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think, yeah... It's a it's a really important time, but yeah, these it's a nerve wracking time I think for these young people taking that step into higher education. Yeah. 
Um, so our admission process, everything's happening at the moment. This is this is the time of year when everything gets going. So we've had all of our applications received now. Those coming in early October. So what's happening now is the first round auditions. Um, and then decisions will be made about who gets through to the second round. Uh, and we're usually able to make all our offers before Christmas. So our process involves students, applicants doing uh, an audition, and that might be uh, vocal audition, instrumental audition, pop audition, uh, or having a composition portfolio assessed for composers. And that's the first that's the first hurdle. So um, and that's the most important hurdle, really. Are they of a level in terms of their performance of composition that would allow them to slot into our first year? And the standard is high. You know, we are hugely oversubscribed, but also um, hopefully doesn't shut out any of those incredible musicians that we would like. So, for example, we're really focused on access and inclusion and trying to make sure that those criteria are broad enough to allow people to come in who perhaps might not have had the opportunities to make to make music to their full potential, but will be able to do it with our support. So our, our other criteria is two E's at A-level. And we've kept that low specifically because, not because most of our students get two E's on average. In fact, they get around three B's when you look at the data. But we've kept it that low specifically, again, because the people who come to us might not have had the opportunity to study, for example, music A-level at a high level, or even have come from a school where... Um, they're supported to achieve their full potential. We absolutely have students who've come in with two E's and have gone out with fantastic first-class degrees and amazing performance careers. We do also have criteria that allow us to accept students who don't have A-levels. And in that case, we just review their applications on a one-to-one basis. But um, we hope that everybody who, who wants to make music, who is an amazing musician, can come. And where where do they come from generally? Do they Did they have to do a really intense music school before? Or what's the what's the level? Is there different levels of admissions? So you'd say, right, that's admission to that level. You don't you play. You've got a medium uh, level, but you're gonna follow a very very intense curriculum or not, and you're gonna learn something very very broad on music. What's uh, what, what are the different levels? It's just we audition uh, applicants as we find them. So, so, there are, so there are no different levels at that stage. And the panels are just looking at the students and thinking, um, you know, let's, let's, see, let's see what you can do. Let's see what music means to you. Let's see you express yourself through music. And then we have a little chat with them just to learn a bit more about the musical interests and passions. But we absolutely audition as we, as we find. We don't have contextual admissions as such, you know, a specific way in which we allow for students who might have come from backgrounds where they haven't had access. But we try to take that into account in the discussions that we have with students. If Perhaps if they're borderline and we realise that they've, they're coming from a background where they might not have had the same opportunities. We do have students from uh, music schools and we have very good partners down the road, Cheetham's Music School. Um, but we have lots of students who haven't come from those schools as well. And in general, our intake is about 30% international, 70% home in EU. That's great. And I also saw on your, your website that you were also trying to engage early with with junior players. That's why there's the junior INCM. Can you say more on this as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have this thriving junior RNCM, JRN, uh, JRNCM programme where young amazing young musicians come to us on a saturday and this is for performers composers and this is we run this um separately but very much in line with the idea of preparing musicians who will enter our degrees 
And again, absolutely, that is broad in terms of who we who joins us in at JRNCM. We also have this absolutely fantastic program called Pathfinder, which is a program that we um, that we fund, that we invite funding for, to enable young musicians to come to us and to join some of our young programs. We also have programs like we have Young Strings, Young Horns. Um, and to join those programmes without having to pay for those if they're from backgrounds where they're not able to pay for that that tuition. Great. And I presume um, it's not just classical music that's taught here, but a very broad range of music genres and styles. Yeah, absolutely. So the two main undergraduate degree programmes that we have are... A, a classical program if you like and a popular music program but they have a lot of overlapping modules and within both of those there are lots and lots of jazz musicians and lots of opportunities um to to work on jazz and to focus on jazz um and we have a lot of great folk musicians as well so one of our fantastic alumni are the folk ensemble Cabantu, who have gone on to do absolutely fantastic things Great. And um, so I'll finish with uh, a question maybe more for myself, but do you know how many conservatoires there are in the UK? Because I know in, in France there's one conservatoire in theory in every council. Is it the same proportion in the UK or there's far less? Do you know about this? So there are a number of conservatoires in the UK. There are four so-called royal conservatoires, so they're linked to the associated board of the Royal School of Music. So there's us, there's the Royal College of Music in London, there's the Royal Academy of Music in London, uh, there's the Royal Scottish Conservatoire of um, Music and Drama, sorry, there's five, and there's, a, and there's the Royal Welsh. Um, there are other conservatoires, so we have a group, Conservatoires UK, Um, uh, which includes representatives from 11 UK conservatoires. So it is broader as well. There's other institutions, not just those ones linked to the ABRSM. And I think, hopefully, they're spread around enough for everybody to be able to find somewhere to go and to study specialist music, um, and definitely within those four countries in the UK. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, let's jump on to your research activities, which I, I was quite looking forward to because... <laughs> Before uh, before the podcast, we talked a lot about what you did, and you've got some interesting headsets as well on your desk, yeah. uh, which you're going to talk to us about. Uh, and maybe yeah, that can be the first first topic you can describe. Um, I I note I noted is studying the difference um, between live and recorded music performance in uh, in our non-conscious responses. So can you? Yeah, describe a little bit more your research. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so my, my research journey started with uh, with what would be called music psychology or perhaps music and science, slightly more broad. Um, I studied my PhD with Ian Cross in the Centre for Music and Science um, at the University of Cambridge. And I started with an interest in music and maths, really, and, and what you might be able to perceive in musical structure. And that very quickly evolved into the idea of... Um, how time is felt and how music might change your perception of time or duration. So I started my research journey in that domain, really. How, how can listening to music change your perception of time? And that's just culminated in a, in a book that came out earlier this year on music and time. But then I moved more towards the experience of listening in a live context. And I think I got even more interested in this 
over over the last few years and given everything that covid deprived us of that live music experience and so i got really interested in that and I, th- I started working with lots of partners around manchester so you know we're ideally placed in manchester to, to study live music and i was working with colleagues at the university of manchester in their psychology and neuroscience teams i was working with colleagues at salford in their acoustics team and with colleagues at mmu in their digital arts team and it just became apparent that you know we've got so much here that we can bring together and create such a strong research team which is which is what we did so we have this this lovely music audiences neuroscience cognition and society research team the manx research team so one of the things we got really interested in over covid was okay, what are people missing? Are they missing live music? What are they missing about it? And is it being accurately or effectively represented in live streams? Because as we know, in these early days of COVID, lots of organisations tried to put their planned performance programme online, um, including the RNCM. We had our live from the RNCM series where we wanted the students to still have that opportunity to perform to the public. Um, And so we broadcast a series of performances. So the first thing that we did during COVID was, as a, as a research team, we launched a big survey to just ask people, um, what are you missing about live music? What's special about live music? Have you live streamed performance? What's special about live streaming? And the outcome of, of that data analysis was very much that people miss live music and that no matter their experience of live streaming, they were looking forward to going back to it. And the reasons were things like it was more immersive, uh, there's more of an atmosphere, there's more of a sense of occasion. And one of the main themes that came out of that data was it's a more shared experience that you get to interact not just with the performer or performers, but also with the other audience members. So lots of things that are very difficult to replicate on a live stream. You know, with family as well. Exactly. It's a... It's an important um, shared thing to do. And, you know, we've got a lot of fantastic research on how music helps us to bond and to be together socially and for communities to come together and for families to come together to celebrate and to grieve. You know, music's an essential fabric, I think, of, of how we are together as humans. And and all of that comes out comes out in this research. So it's very clear that the live music industry was very much missed. And so the, the next step on from that, from that, that survey research was to say, okay, well, we can see from this survey research and from other similar research that had been done around the world over over COVID, it was a really nice chance to learn more about, about people's perceptions of live music and what they missed. What was clear from that was we know when you ask people, they say that they miss live music and they say it's because of all these really important things. But what we wanted to know was, yes, but can you see that in their body? Can you see it represented in their body and can you see it represented in their brain? So the next step was we designed a study with Manchester Camerata um, as, our, as our kind of professional partners. And, and jointly, we got some funding from the Centre for Cultural Value, which is part of the University of Leeds, to put together a study to do this. So it was a study designed to look at if someone listens to a live performance versus a recording of that same performance, do you see a difference in their neurological signal? Does something different happen in their brain? And do you also see a difference in how their bodies respond? So it was an ambitious study, but it was worth it. Sorry, Michelle. Um, did, is Camerata specialised in brain uh, brain scanning? Is that Are they the brain experts, or who was the brain experts in the, in the team? So Manchester because, Camerata sorry, are... I presume there's a lot of brain knowledge to have to do such research. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is, you know, it's another one of those strengths of, of Manchester and, and this and, and all the 
all the expertise we have here. So Manchester Camarata are the ensemble, the professional uh, orchestra. And um, the neuroscience expertise came from my colleagues at the University of Manchester and their um, neuroscience and psychology teams. And they had the EEG lab, which is where we ran the study from. Okay, interesting. And you've got that very cool headset. We've got this cool headset, why, yeah, why did you? Why Need did you have name, it? I think. Um, so, so the other thing that... that was happening sort of alongside this this study with Manchester Camerata was that I was thinking of ways that we can develop this research even further. And one of the limitations of neurological studies that look at response to music is is the technology. And a lot of EEG caps, so EEG is a way of measuring people's brain response to music. It stands for electroencephalography. And it's, it looks a bit like a swimming cap that you put on someone's head and it has electrodes in it, which which basically just make a connection with the scalp. Usually you have to put a little bit of gel under them. And you can tell basically where the activity in the brain is. You know, it's still... the What we know about the brain is still limited in lots of ways, but basically you can tell what which bit of the brain is, is active. And one of the limitations of this research is that these EEG caps have to be used in a lab partly because of how they have to be wired to different bits of equipment and partly because of the sound isolation that's needed so that things like lights don't interfere with the signal. But what's happened recently is that developers are now starting to make EEG caps which are portable and which can be used in a concert hall without having too much interruption to the signal. So the one that you can see here fits very easily onto somebody's head. It doesn't use gel. It uses foam bungs, which are soaked in salt water. So it's the salt water that provides the connectivity. And it just has a little device that slots in the back, which Bluetooths to a computer. So you're not restricted by the wires. So technology is evolving. So it's quite exciting what we'll be able to do with this cap, because we'll be able to get data in a real environment. So are you planning what what sort of... Uh, experiments are you planning are you planning experiment just with one person in the audience in in front of a small group of musicians and then you're going to go gradually into bigger audiences more headset with more headsets to see maybe if there's more in effect in interacting with their neighbors what what would be the next steps yeah all of the above all of the above exactly yeah so i think our initial steps are to just keep testing this cap and what we can do with it um and what scenarios it works best in we're still getting used to um making sure that it's properly connected making sure that we can properly understand the output and interpret that output so what we'll do early on are some studies where we use this cap in one of our performances at the rncm And we see what sort of output we're getting from it in response to different kinds of music. And with one cap, we'll hopefully be able to get some indication of responses to music within a concert hall. But the next step, absolutely, is to look where we might be able to get funding for more of these caps. And I think once we have more of these, we'll be able to make much bigger waves in terms of learning much more about the live music experience. And given that this is portable, it's very easy for somebody to to wear. It's very easy for someone to put on. Hopefully we can start to to really lead the way in studies that that just make that kind of data collection part of a normal concert hall experience and we can learn very fast about different concert hall and gig experiences. Great. How much, how much is a headset, I guess? 
The headset and the software that goes with it costs about £17,000, which is actually quite a bit cheaper than the, than the older wired caps, although they tend to have more electrodes. You get a bit more data from them, but they can go up to £70,000, £80,000. Great. It's been, it's been interesting to know the impact on the acoustics as well from a very selfish point of view, but <laughs> um, we know that... Uh, Lateral reflections um, have got a lot of benefits, and so it'd be useful to understand if they've got a benefit for the brain as well, uh, which we kind of have some hints from from different research. But maybe you, or I know you're in collaboration with Trevor Cox and Bruno Fazenda from Salford, yeah. so they might have thought already about this. Yeah, I mean, it would be lovely to, to, to do something like this and it'll definitely be something that we'll talk about in the next steps with, with Bruno and Duncan and, and Trevor. One of the things that we really wanted to do but didn't quite manage to accommodate with all of the other bits of the methodology in this Manchester Camerata study, one of the things we thought would have been a nice addition would be to record the ensemble because participants saw a live ensemble and then they saw a recording of that performance would be to record that live performance using a dummy head so that we got we tried to get an accurate representation of the sound in that space and then to feed that back via headphones um we didn't manage to do that we got a stereo recording but just with one microphone um, with a, with one setup um, with two channels, so it would be nice to do something like that in future to look at the effect of different ways of recording the audio. You know, it'd be lovely to do something that's a bit more immersive, more multi microphones, yeah. and see if something that simply has more microphones placed accurately means that maybe you could see that the brain was more focused or more attention was paid, or you got fewer alpha bursts which you tend to see in the signal when somebody is distracted or not paying so much attention great that's quite interesting so yeah live music and going to live performance does have massive benefits much more benefits than just sitting at your desk and watching youtube it seems to we're still analyzing the data but um I mean, that's our big research question and we've got a way to go before I think we can be sure about that. But we're getting there and I think that that I think that is what we think we'll see. And we've got some data from the participants in that experiment just reporting back to us how they felt. And that's what you absolutely see in their in their reports. But I think as well, this is it's exciting because it's exactly that. You know, this team in Manchester, we're in a really good place to do this and to really lead the way. Teams aren't doing this around the world because it requires a lot of expertise, a lot of tech um, and, a, and a passion for these kinds of research questions, but um, we've got it. We've got it here. It's exciting. Great. Do you see any applications in the industry for this, or will it just be another proof to say go to live live performances? Yeah. To encourage people to go out. I mean, the the initial um, application of of what we're looking at is already of interest, I think, in, in terms of a couple of conversations we've had. Manchester Camerata in particular were interested in partnering with us on these research questions um, in that they want to know, and I think a lot of ensembles want to know, coming out of COVID, is there still a market and an appetite for live streams? And um, There's that new venue that's opened in Camden, isn't there, after the fire, where they have rebuilt that venue so that everything can be live streamed. They've put the, they've put the kit in the walls. And I think a lot of ensembles and venues are asking themselves that question. Should we still be live streaming everything? Can we charge for that? How big is the market for that? 
And I think our initial application is to feed exactly into that. You know, do venues, will the live audiences flood back? And will there also be an an audience online or will there not be? And I think what we're seeing so far in the data that we've gathered is that there is absolutely a market for live stream performance. And in a way, the people who prefer live streamed or enjoy live stream performance are those who maybe weren't being catered for before. They're the people with caring responsibilities or people who might have illnesses or social phobias or other commitments that mean that they can't they can't leave the house or people who are really um, focused on climate change agendas and don't want to travel. So live streaming has opened out a whole possibility to cater for a market that wasn't there before. I'd really like as well to, because we're going to see the benefits of live performance. A lot of performances are within the evening, but um, me personally, I can't go out on gig. Well, I can, but I'd like to go out with my kids to gigs and show what a uh, a band is. And um, yes, there are there are events, but I'd like to have more events, opportunities for different types of and genres of music to to take my my kids to and experience music together. But I guess we'll, we'll experience it also later because I've got very young kids. But it's, it's nice from very, very early age to, to go to a little gig and see, uh, see instruments and, um, and musicians play and share that. It's really important. Yeah, we had our we had our Halloween spooktacular family day here on on Sunday, and the building was full. You know, the concert hall was sold out, so full of kids and families. It was really really exciting. I think as well, um, your comment makes me think about the the other data set that we've got that we're now starting to look at that we got as part of this survey over COVID, which is that we asked people if they had accessed a live streamed performance, what how did they listen? You know, so did they use their laptop? Did they use a PC? Did they did they use a TV? And um, what equipment do they have at home? Did they use the speakers that were inbuilt into a simple laptop? Do they have some more advanced speakers? And I think the more we know about how people who listens, who who likes live stream performance, who are they? What equipment do they have at home? How might we improve that listening experience at home? That viewing experience? It will help people to be able to develop tech that isn't too expensive, but that does the job of just making that performance a bit more effective at home. So perhaps embraces the idea of people feeling more physically present or more immersed. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good idea. Um, I've also seen that you were studying or researching on the relation between music and entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us more about it? Because I've got no idea what that means. <laughs> Yeah, this has been an absolutely fantastic project. Um, it's We do a lot here in everything that we do with students to just help them prepare for their careers. And their careers will be quite often freelance careers or portfolio careers. So in other words, there'll be careers where they have different aspects of their work so maybe they're gigging sometimes maybe they're teaching sometimes maybe they're part of an orchestra an ensemble a choir a band um so they'll put together their portfolio of activities from lots of different areas of the music industry so a lot of what we do here are skills training them in skills around that so you know managing projects managing finances networking um and all of those things around the edges and all of those things that we do you could see roughly under the bracket of this term entrepreneurship it's used in lots of different ways so we've already always done those things this opportunity came up um to apply for some money the office for students and research england so two of the big 
governing bodies in higher education, funding bodies, had a pot about four years ago. They announced a pot to support institutions doing projects in the areas of knowledge exchange, so students working with partners. Uh, and we applied for some of this money. We applied to lead a project, so six of us at the RNCM, uh, with me leading this project, and then with partners, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, so theatre and drama training there in London, and University of the Arts London. So again, they're in London and they're made up of lots of different disciplines. So they teach fashion, jewellery, photography, communication, lots of different things, art. So we put this bid in and we were really pleased to have been successful. And we we got this announcement in, in April 2020, so just as just as COVID was making things difficult for us all. So it's some nice good news. It was a two-year project. Uh, we got nearly a million pounds for it. Uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. We're really, really grateful and, and, and we, we made the most of it, I think. So what we did was there were three parts to it. Each of those three institutions used some of that money to basically develop what they do for students. So to expand the offer in terms of training creative industry students for their careers. So, for example, at the RNCM, we did things like we introduced um, mentoring sessions where we brought in industry partners to work with students on their ideas. We introduced clinics and workshops. So, for example, a fundraising workshop for students to learn how they might get funding for their projects. So we did lots of new things and we developed lots of our existing things. So the first two parts of the project were those two things. Each of those three institutions developed what they were already doing and tried new things and shared that knowledge. The third part of the project was that we came together as three institutions to do some things together, which was absolutely, you know, so much fun and so much learning happened. You don't get those chances that often working in one university to work in partnership with colleagues at two other creative arts specialist institutions. So we put on a boot camp, an entrepreneurship boot camp for students. And we put on a series of 15 workshops where we brought in industry specialists to talk to students. So it was a brilliant two years. It's just finished. And we learned so much about how you can effectively teach students in everything, ranging from finances and spreadsheets to networking, to managing projects, to um, setting up your own business. So it's been yeah really useful. And we're just preparing our final report so that we can share more of our findings. Great. I feel like... It's really good that a lot of unis and schools even should um, teach how it is to create your company. And because I've seen that book uh, in a in a library that about uh, entrepreneurship for for kids, and they make an intro- a big introduction, but really thorough and interesting introduction to right. You want to earn money? How how do you do? How do you do marketing? And there was this analogy of this lemonade um, where they teach the kids to understand their market, so who they're going to sell the lemonades to, um, what flavour, so who's basically who's their target, and within that target, who prefers what and how much they're ready to pay for, why they would pay for it, and then once you earn money, it's really interesting why you pay tax because you have to pay tax and it's really interesting to know where your tax money goes to without any political orientation but it's really interesting to know why you have to pay tax what's legal as well if you want to employ people what's um what's what's acceptable what's not legal how you need to treat people and i think it's really key because even if you don't create your company you know how a company works 
and it's it's really paramount for cash flow for example understanding that you need to invoice your clients and understanding why um your your boss might uh really annoy you to and ask you every time to invoice when you don't want to do it because it's not fun you want to focus on the technical thing but it is essential to the life of business and same as you need to plan for your taxes so i feel like now all the schools and all the unis should have entrepreneurship courses it's really it's very important and even like and as a musician you want to be a freelance and there's going to be more and more freelancers as we go in the future because there's less people who want to work for companies they want for, to work for themselves they want to have more freedom in the way they want to organize their times so uh, it's going to be a big thing and or people will have a hybrid solution where they'll be probably working part-time as employees and then the other time will probably be freelance yeah so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's really important i agree yeah brilliant we're on, we're on the same page yeah absolutely and it's becoming more important than ever and it's great that they're, they're now taking things like this back into schools and I, we've seen that term really broadly entrepreneur you know our students might go off and be employed in an orchestra or in, in, a, in an arts organization and there's this term intrapreneur so you know you can be in entrepreneurial within an organization yeah, you can yeah. be an intrapreneur and it's really really important and i think for us we know that you know we're slightly different in terms of other disciplines studied in higher education in that when our students arrive they're already professional musicians you know a lot of them are already teaching they're already gigging and we need to recognize that they need these skills right from day one so for example I do a class with our first years which just teaches them about all the different ways that they might think about making money as a musician Mm. and the ways that they might think about how much they charge for their services I did a class with our final year students um, this week, which was all about how you manage a project budget and how you put together a quote, for example, if somebody asks you to play at their wedding. Um, and all of those things are so important. And we do we, what we do, I think, really nicely is put it all through the four years. It's not something you just give them at the end. They're professional musicians while they're here and you need to embed it throughout. Yeah, it's great. Um, another topic is the relationship between music and Parkinson's that makes sense a little bit more but can you describe a bit more yeah this has been a really lovely project to be involved in and I think my one of my biggest passions in life is this idea that music that humans need music music is essential it's not a nice to have um it's not just for enjoyment and fun although of course that's important we actually need music we need it this is why we dance together this is why we sing together it bonds us but not only that it has an impact on well-being and healthcare, a direct impact and i think we're now beginning to see this on some of the in some of the fascinating work that's happening in the healthcare sector you know, on things like dementia and Parkinson's. So this Parkinson's project that I'm involved with, with a team of international researchers, is looking at how people who are living with Parkinson's use music and what circumstances they use music in and whether that is related to their symptoms of Parkinson's or not. So this big survey that we conducted uh, with 300 people with Parkinson's asked a variety of questions from the stage that their Parkinson's disease was at and the medication that they take to the extent to which they have musical experience in terms of listening or performing or training and the extent to which they perhaps use music while they're doing the washing up or um, having a walk and why they use music. 
We also had a lot of questions in this survey on things like, does music help them if they freeze? So one of the symptoms of Parkinson's is that you might experience freezing and, and not be able to move. And do they use music, imagined music? So we had a whole set of questions around musical imagery. You know, do you use music that you imagine in your head to help you to move? For example, marching music. So it's one of the first big studies of uses of music in people with Parkinson's. I will keep banging on the benefits of music on this podcast. On this podcast, but <laughs> Great. there's so many, so many advantages of playing music for yeah. intellectual abilities and health, uh, everything. Yeah. So it should be more subsidized, uh, more, or we should invest more time Absolutely. and money. If can't wait for money to come to us every yeah. time, but. And I think it's also about, you know, getting the research, um, doing this research, getting the research out there. I think sometimes people, the research that we do know about that impacts on healthcare, we know about the fantastic things that music therapy can do. And we know that music makes, cheers people up. You know, if you're poorly and you're feeling a bit down, it cheers people up, it has a huge impact on mood. I think what isn't so often recognised is it does have a direct impact on symptoms in a lot of cases. So, for example, somebody with dementia who perhaps can't remember the names of their family can remember the lyrics of a song. There's some fantastic work that shows that if people living with dementia even hear music, it can trigger memories that they couldn't otherwise trigger. And some great work that shows things like carers report that if people living with dementia listen to music, that their drugs can sometimes be reduced. Their level of antipsychotic drugs can sometimes be reduced. There's a direct impact. It's great. Yeah, I'm, I was telling you before that um, I'm reading a book and it associates uh, the benefits of rhythm in music is is really high in learning a language and writing as well, which is crazy when you think about it. Just listening and practicing music and a certain rhythm will have a lot of benefits on your language development or of a child. And yeah, it was saying, the book was saying, I don't know all the the details. Uh, I, need, I feel like I need to know them exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it has exactly the same benefits uh, as having language therapy. Yeah, it's a workout for the brain. Music uses all parts of the brain. When you put an, an EEG cap on someone to look at their neurological response to music, what you basically find is music uses all parts of the brain. It's a really stimulating thing for people to do and be involved in. And it can often bridge barriers that language can't bridge. For example, there's some great work being done to help people from Ukraine to settle into the UK by using music to interact with children who've just arrived, they've had to leave their homeland, but you can play music with them and they can express themselves. Yeah, it's definitely... You could do... There's a lot of studies to do that with uh, your headsets. Yeah. <laughs> and you could, you could even get people to play music and see which parts of the brain are active and get them to do something else. Yeah. And see if anything changes... Or certain, I guess, certain types of musics will definitely have an influence. But um, yeah, you, you always find as well. I always find that different part in different parts of my life, I've listened to different types of music, and re listening to the specific music at the time brings me back to that moment. Which is obviously, I mean, no, everybody knows about it, but uh, it's crazy how. 
you just maybe you've got phases as well you've got really sad phases and you just listen to sad sad songs and you've got some really happy phases and just listening to them brings you back to to that as well it's very powerful it's it's really powerful and i think the the research around music and emotion is is one of the oldest parts of the music and science research but there's still so much we don't know and I think one of the really amazing questions in that area of research for me is, are musical emotions different to daily emotions? So, you know, is it as simple as saying to somebody, did that piece make you feel happy or sad? Or did it make you feel nostalgic? Perhaps musical emotions are actually more complicated than that. You know, they might be linked to nostalgia, but maybe they're slightly different. And I think about the research around sad music. There's now a lot of research on sad music. And that's really fascinating because the the researchers asked the very logical question, you know, why? Why would we listen to sad music? Why would we engage with something that makes us sad? And one of the key theories around that is that it's, it's musical sadness. It's a different emotion. And it's also a way that we manage our own mood and grief. And we also have that lovely feeling that we know we will be happy afterwards. It's a controlled sadness. So I think those musical emotions that we experience, they can often be much more direct than language. And I would say sometimes more complex. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, another topic I saw on your page which relates to the previous episode is about performance anxiety. Mm. When um, you've... The, the episode at the time, at the moment, the, the episode hasn't been released, but it will be released ne- next week. Um, it's Greta Gasse telling how about her performance anxiety and she doesn't perform anymore but um she's been talking we've been talking a lot about it and i saw that you had a is that a phd student you had or you were a supervisor of somebody exploring uh the sorry exploring the role that education can play in reducing music performance anxiety is that right yeah, absolutely. We we have a number of PhD students now looking at areas related to this. I think it's one of the big questions, especially for, for places like, like ours. How do we make sure that musicians that we're working with and that will go out into the music industry to do great things are well, fit, healthy and are in a position where when they perform, they love it. And that if they do experience any anxiety, that that's you know, perhaps a useful thing or, a, you know, a, something that fuels their performance rather than anything that is a, has a negative impact on their mental or physical well-being. So we've got a real specialism in music performance anxiety here, largely thanks to my colleague, Jane Ginsborg, who is, is this is one of her, her real expertise areas. So we get lots of PhD students who come here to work with our students to look at performance anxiety to work with Jane to work with me um, on some of the work I've done on this I've done some work um, on different areas of this and to learn more about how we can make sure that being a musician is something where people are happy and well and not something that has negative consequences for their well-being and I think this is a really important development and if anything it's come it's come quite late we've had lots of musicians in the past that you hear that have actually been really poorly with anxiety. We need to make sure that alongside technical training, we train students to be happy and well. Yeah. It's a big topic because it's extremely stressful to perform in front of people. Yeah. And how do you manage this? And where does it come from? We we thought with Greta, well, Greta was saying it's probably from her 
music education, the way it's been taught, and there's a lot of peer pressure. She feels more pressure from her peers, peer musicians, than an audience who doesn't play music. And, it, yeah, it's really... It's, it's crazy. It's, it's terrifying, isn't it? And, it? and it's and it just makes you feel like these issues are all the more urgent. And, you know, it's all the more important that we're, we're doing this research and we're prioritising it. We were the first conservatoire to employ a lecturer in music health and well-being whose area of expertise this is. So um, which I think has been absolutely fantastic. But you do see um, that there's still work we can do. Uh, we we tend to find exactly, as you say, that students are sometimes worried what their peers think. And what we talk about a lot recently is that this, we have to be a place where it is where where people feel safe to fail and I think this is a real focus at the moment also because it's, it's linked to that whole idea of being entrepreneurial take risks and take risks knowing that it will be okay if it doesn't work out because we are here to support you and to teach you to take those risks safely in a way that won't damage your health or your well-being so I think we have to be a building, and I think we've made huge strides in this, where people can feel that they can get practice at putting themselves out there in a safe way and that there won't be negative consequences or that they can manage their performance to prevent those negative consequences. Yeah, I remember, um, um, not, not so much for me, for, but definitely for my sisters who played violin and piano that are very, very competitive instruments because everybody wants to play them and there's a massive selection at the beginning uh, and there's a big, big pressure on performing with um, just having everything, to do everything by heart, uh, big performances, constantly no mistakes and that. And then after that, there's probably parents who might put a lot of pressure as well because they want their kids to perform. So, uh, so yeah, it's just snowballs. Um, I feel like it's a really, really deep problem that uh, everybody has to solve. We yeah. can't solve it with just one one action, Absolutely. which is, yeah which requires more energy. There's lots of absolutely. There's lots of ways we've got to think about it. One of the things again, this came out of some of the themes of the entrepreneurship project that we've changed a lot about how we work in many different ways is to meet students where they are. So we get some students who come into the building who are quite comfortable performing in different scenarios. We get some other students who are not. So students, some students might come in and be very comfortable performing in one context but not in another. So I think that idea of us working with students as individuals, you know, in every way possible, their beliefs, their values, their experiences, and the things that do worry them or don't worry them. And it's not the same for everyone. And I think the more we can do that, as soon as they come in the building, the better. What's your experience as a saxophonist? Did you, well, presumably you play solo sometimes in front yeah. of an audience? Yeah, I, I only play with this one group now, this this nine-piece um, saxophone group, which does involve some solos. I think my preference is definitely ensemble playing, and I think part of that is because I'm not, uh, I'm not good enough, really, to have a solo career at all. I think I feel very happy and in my, in my place playing baritone saxophone in that group. I do get nervous. I think uh, I also get nervous when I teach. I get nervous when, especially when I do some of the bigger classes here. Um, I think for me, they're usually good nerves. And I think I know now as well, if I get nervous, it's because it means something to me. Uh, and I, you know, I'm I'm a lot older than our students now, much as I tend to pretend I'm not. And I think I've got used to what I do and the nerves that come with that. And that, you know, that just means that afterwards I'll feel even better to have done something, knowing that it meant a lot to me. Yeah, great. Any other 
research topics that you're feeling really passionate about and we've not mentioned yet? <laughs> I mean, there's one project. I'm just eyeing up the other cool cool things that have, have started to live in my office recently, which is these fantastic African balafons, these African xylophones. And it's linked to something that you, you mentioned earlier. And there's a research project that I'm working on with colleagues from the University of Manchester and the University of Cambridge and a colleague based in France, where we are looking at... When people, when two people make music together and we're using these lovely pentatonic African xylophones, to what extent do they form a bond, a social bond, compared to a pair of people who do something different? For example, they build a Jenga tower out of wooden blocks. And that project is going to use a method called hyperscanning, which is where you scan two brains at the same time and you look for those brain signals being similar in some way. So we'll be using the EG caps. And there is evidence that when two people feel connected in some way, that their neurons do seem to couple fire at similar rates. So we're really excited about the idea that we could we could see whether when people two people make music together, there might be evidence of neural coupling and perhaps whether that evidence is stronger than when two people do something else together. And of course, it, you know, it's, it's one of those research questions that is fundamental, I think, to, to humans and music. It's that whole idea that music is a part of how we are together and how we, and how we link up with one another across boundaries, you know, without the linguistic boundaries. Um, so that's an exciting study. Great. That's really interesting. Um, I know also you've got other activities and you mentioned uh, the first time we spoke uh, Turn It Up, which is the new exhibition at the Manchester uh, Science and Industry Museum. Can you well talk more about it? Absolutely, yeah. This is a great exhibition. It actually opens today. Um, it's an exhibition that will be at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester and it will be here until May 2023 when it will go to the Science Museum in London and then it's it's going it's touring Europe. So it's called Turn It Up, The Power of Music and it is an exhibition that is dedicated to showing the role of music in our lives and the power that that music has on our lives. And I've worked with the curator team there for the last two or three years now just working on ideas of what that exhibition might include, key topics in music and science. And it's been brilliant to be involved with it. And I'm really grateful to that team because it's been a nice experience for me. And we're now getting lots of press interest, which is fantastic. Now the, the exhibition is launching on just what that exhibition is and the significance of it. You know, it's absolutely fantastic to have an exhibition in the Science Museum that looks at science and music and recognises that you know, it's not so useful to put these things in boxes, sciences on one side and arts on the other. Um, music is something that has an impact on us as humans, scientifically, as well as all the other ways that it impacts us. Great. And uh, I know also you work with other museums, or you have worked on other museums. Uh, you've worked with the Science Museum in London, with other, um, other exhibitions, what, what are they? Yeah, so the Science Museum in London, quite a while ago now, eight or nine years ago, they had an exhibition on uh, music psychology. So that's ex an exhibition that showcased some of the methods that we use when we look at how people listen to music. Um, and I advised on, on that. And I, had, um, I also advised on a, an exhibition in Moscow that was similar, uh, that looked at music and science and how they work together. That was linked to some funding with the... Uh, I can't remember where they got their funding from, but it was really nice to be involved in that project. Great, that's quite interesting. I feel like uh, psychology 
is everywhere now. I hear about psychology in every topic mixed with other topic. And um, is it taught now at school? Yes. It is taught in some schools. Um, unfortunately, it's usually only at A-level. I don't think you can study this at GCSE. I think you'll find bits of it embedded in different, in different subjects. Um, you can take a psychology A-level. It's not available at a lot of schools. Um, but I, I agree. I think people are more... Well, I think the, 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 the big thing here is that younger people are extremely socially conscious. You know, they're an incredible bunch of people. I learn so much from the younger generation. I think they're much more aware of all the things that matter, like the climate and like um, humans, you know, looking after each other. And so I think that whole generation are demanding from their education something that is much more open and much more human and, and and less focused on some of the things that perhaps were more important to my generation which was maybe you know uh, generating financial value they're much more interested in social value and in well-being value so I think we're definitely seeing more students coming into higher education who are more interested in pursuing projects with social uh, with social backbones or with um, ideas that will impact on things other than themselves yeah it's Definitely, we've uh, it clicks for me because we've we've recently thought about moving. We live in Stratford, and we've been thinking about moving house. But we love Stratford. We know so many people there. Uh, our kids have got have got all their friends, and whenever we go to the park, we'll we'll meet somebody we know, or from nursery, or from the the neighbourhood. And we we went to visit a few houses uh, in other areas, but we felt really bad and guilty because we thought, where well, all, all our friends are going to be, and it's so important for us to just go out of the house and go and see our friends, or not even texting them, just going out, and we know we're going to bump onto somebody. And yeah, those relationships and social relationships are really important. It's really important, and I think it's it's important for a building like ours as well to connect with the community, to not just be a building that is seen as something that that that, that isn't related to everything that's happening around us. It's another big focus of the fiftieth anniversary. I think you've got to embrace that. It's what matters to us as people, isn't it? It's, we talk here about the RNCM family. We're extremely open and very friendly. I think we're we're very good at that kind of non-hierarchical approach of we're all in it together. We're just people with a passion for music with similar beliefs and values. Yeah, definitely. Great. Um, so we're going to wrap up now. We've got a f- quiz, which do you want to do, Jake? Yeah, sure. I've been, uh, been very quiet today, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, come on. <laughs> I just don't need to... Uh, you, you did it for, in, really. yeah, you did it for Joanne and Greta. <laughs> so I thought you could, you could do it now. Okay. Um, so what is your favourite venue as a performer? Yeah, good question. It's a big one, isn't it? Um, I think one of my favourite venues has got to be the place where we where we rehearse as a as a saxophone nonette, which is a church in Kinalton, a little village near Nottingham, which sounds lovely and has lots of um, lovely associations for me because we've rehearsed there for a long time. So it's the place I I feel very at home at making making music. Um, I have performed at the Royal Albert Hall. I don't think I'd say that's my favourite. It was nice to perform there. Really. Yeah, that was um, the proms and it was, I was singing actually, I was part of the, um, I was studying at Cambridge at the time and it was one of the big anniversaries for the University of Cambridge and I was singing in my college choir and the college choirs formed a large choir and the University of Cambridge had a slot in the proms to celebrate their anniversary. 
It was lovely, absolutely lovely. Okay, so same um, kind of thing, but what is your favourite venue as a listener this time? I think, um, well, obviously, I absolutely love our, our concert hall. I think our concert hall is a really special, a special place to listen. I also love the Bridgewater Hall, you know, another Manchester venue. I talk to the students a lot about this when we when we do our acoustics class, because it's so well designed. You know, it's got that lovely design of basically being a very large space, but because it's got these, it's like a vineyard design with these little shoebox bits within it. So you still get that feeling of intimacy in your little bit within the Bridgewater. And wherever you sit, the sound quality and volume is designed to be just the same. Yeah, it's a great hall. I agree. Mm. We're very lucky. Yeah. And next, what is your favourite place to rehearse? Oh, look, I've kind of done that one already, haven't I, with the, with the question about, about the venue. Um, yeah. I think for me, a rehearsal space is one is, is similar to a performance space. It's one where it, it sounds really great. I think that, that space that we rehearse as a saxophone group is, is lovely. I think we've got two studios here that I absolutely love, Studios 6 and 7, that sound absolutely beautiful. Um, so probably one of those, which all sound better than my kitchen, which is where I also rehearse. <laughs> it doesn't have to be just about acoustics, the more the experience, how easy to access it, how comfortable it is to play there, is there any facilities near it, um, how close is it to your home, things like this. Because um, I realise that it's not just, well, obviously it's not just about acoustics, but yeah. in my from my small head of acousticians, <laughs> I think every, everything is related to acoustics, but it's not. And I just want to get people to... To say this is not just about acoustics; it's also about the rest. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, this one's this one's a bit. In, in that case, this one's a bit uh, a bit outside the box. But one of the things I spend a lot of my time doing is giving talks at conferences, um, and and invited talks, which is always lovely. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about conference presentations. One of the things that I really got into over COVID was was um, VR, was um, using the Oculus Quest Two. And my collaborator, who I wrote the Music and Time book with, we were preparing for various presentations and we figured out that we could have these meetings over VR and we had our little avatars and we could rehearse our presentations and we could draw on the virtual whiteboard. And actually that space, that virtual space works as a, as a space to have a conversation and to practice something collaboratively, at least when it's, when it's, when it's verbal, it, perhaps not so well with performance in terms of music, but I'm quite excited by the opportunities of that virtual space. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, is there a venue where you would love to perform? Yeah, I'd I'd love to. Um, I, I've spoken a bit to Trevor Cox about this, who is a saxophonist and and loves performing in unusual venues. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, he just he's got some great some great, <laughs> Which is great things yeah. that he's done podcasts and stuff on his and, and things on his website. Um, I think. Again, slightly unusual one, but I've, I visited Singapore a little bit before. In fact, it was probably six or seven years ago. And they had this amazing new concert hall, which was not dissimilar to the Bridgewater, but sort of um, a bit newer than that. And so they had things like, um, f in terms of uh, disseminating the sound and diffusing the sound around the space, they'd use this really specific silk that they'd line the balconies with. And they had these really... Um, advanced ways of lowering the platform above the stage and lots of flexibility in terms of where the sound bounced from from, from the top plate. I'd love to perform there. 
Yeah, me too, by the sounds of it. Same. <laughs> or just stand there. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah, absolutely lovely to see as well. It's an amazing place. Okay, so the last question, um, is there anyone that, you know, you could think of that would be a good guest for our audience that they might like to hear from? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people that I'm lucky enough to collaborate with are, are absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, Trevor Cox is, is always wonderful at explaining some very sophisticated developments that he's making in, in hearing and acoustics and, and sound. You know, he's, he's absolutely great. Some of the other colleagues at the University of Manchester, so the colleagues working in their neuroscience lab, working on things like language and neuroscience, they would be they would be absolutely brilliant. Um, but I've got some favourites just, you know, who are just big voices in the music world who champion music and everything that it represents. People like Yolanda Brown, who is an absolute, absolute hero of mine. We had Linton Stevens here, bassoonist and Radio 3 presenter, uh, this week, talking about the importance of access and inclusion. And, you know, it was really moving. It brought tears to my eyes, just the way that he speaks about the importance of the music industry in representing the world as it is and making sure everything is open and accessible. Yes, it's a big topic at the moment, inclusivity of performance places and arts. I think it's one that we'll um, inevitably revisit, you know, whether or not it's on a weekly basis, but, um, you know, it ties into everything, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. It's something we're quite passionate about. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've got to move faster, I think. We're playing catch-up, aren't we? The, the world is playing catch-up in being better at making everything accessible and, and making everyone feel included. Um, and we've, we've got to move as fast as we can. Great. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, great talent out there that, you know, deserves to be, to be included. Yeah. So. Yeah. Keep breaking down those, bar- those barriers. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, how can we get in touch with you if you if people want to speak to you? Uh, know more about you? Yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, always always nice to hear from people who are also passionate about all things music and music and science, music and entrepreneurship, music and Parkinson's. Um, my email address is Michelle M I C H E L L E dot Phillips P H I L I P S at R N C M dot A C dot U K. I'm on Twitter as well um, and Instagram and LinkedIn. Is it just Michelle Phillips on Instagram and Twitter? It's underscore Michelle underscore Phillips underscore on Instagram. And it's at, and then three underscores, then Michelle, and then four underscores. Sorry about the underscores. It's all right. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you. It was lovely to have you. Thank you. No, great. Thanks for inviting me. No problem.